Hello, everyone, and welcome to another installment of Podcast 360, your go-to resource for medical news and clinical updates. I'm your moderator, Amanda Valby, with Consultant 360 Specialty Network. Family members of patients in the ICU often experience post-traumatic stress disorder or other stress-related issues. A new study assists novel intervention that aimed to reduce the stress of having a family member in the ICU. The intervention was used in two U.S.-based ICUs and one Italy-based ICU. Participants included family members of patients who had an attending predicted ICU mortality of greater than 30% within the first 24 hours of admission. To gain more insight on the findings of this before and after intervention evaluation, we're speaking today with the study's lead author, Dr. Timothy Amos, who is an assistant professor of medicine in the Pulmonary Sciences and Critical Care Department at the School of Medicine at the University of Colorado in Denver, Colorado. He is also associated with the Rocky Mountain Regional Veterans Affairs Medical Center in Denver. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Amos. Let's dive into your study. To start, can you tell us about the novel intervention you implemented, and can it be implemented in other ICUs? Yeah, so we use the word implementation a little bit for lack of a better word, um, because really what the implementation was, was giving permission to the families um, to participate in the care of their loved one who's in the ICU. So not so much directing with a a specific intervention, but instead offering them opportunities in really sort of like a family-centric approach to participate in the care of their loved one. And um, if you were in the article, you'd see on figure one, we kind of broke it down into uh, seven different domains. And this was created with an iterative process with a group of experts, but basically came down to offering them opportunities that revolved around the five senses. So things like smell, touch, taste, sight, and sound as well as personal care and spiritual care. And the list wasn't necessarily meant to be exhaustive, where, which is why the, uh, the word implementation is a little bit tricky, but instead a suggestion to them. So say for your family, it worked well uh, for your loved one to be touched, to have their hand held or I don't know, their feet massaged or something that you could do that if you'd like. But if for your family, sound was more important or spiritual care was more important, you could engage in that way. And we observed what they did with that engagement. And in that way, I do think to the second part of the question, it it is very easy to implement uh, in really any ICU. All that it was was on admission within the first 24 hours, handing the family members a pamphlet of here are things that are culturally accepted in this ICU, meaning our ICU is open to you participating in the care of your loved one. And so it was a really sort of low energy uh, intervention, meaning there was nothing that the nursing needed to do differently. There was nothing that the physicians or pharmacists need to do differently. Just the researchers informing the family that this was allowed in our ICU. And if you wanna, for example, hold their hand, you should feel welcome too. So it's more of a personal approach to medicine. Yes, you know, and I don't, um, for those who spend time in in ICUs, you know, through my training, I remember just watching again and again, a a patient died hooked to a variety of machines with their family member sitting across the room, 
wringing their hands, you know, kind of <laughs> feeling very stressed by this and having no control of what was going on and thought, you know, this is sort of a very dehumanizing process. Is there a way to humanize it more and say, if it were my loved one, I would want to be holding their hand. How do we give permission for that? And, and so it was the idea behind that. Ah, gotcha. So let's talk now about your findings. How did implementing or using these family care rituals affect symptoms of PTSD in family members? So what we found, and this is not a randomized trial, it was a before and after intervention trial. Um, So it was suggestive that we did reduce symptoms of uh, post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD 90 days after discharge or death from the intensive care unit in the family members that were engaged across our three different sites. Um, Our three different sites, two were U.S. sites and one was an Italian site. So one in Chicago, one in Rhode Island, and one in uh, Florence, Italy. And the hypothesis behind this why we think it reduced it and going into the study why we did it is as you think about PTSD, which historically has come from a sort of a military background, there's kind of three major components to it. And that would be a sudden change in status that necessitates critical decision making and then a real loss of control superimposed on those two previous phenomenon. And when you think of someone entering into the ICU, it's very similar, sort of no matter how sick they appear to us, chronically, something changed in their health status pretty acutely that required them to be in the ICU. And then often we're depending on the family members to make decisions about what their loved one might want in the case of scenarios they've never even been able to consider if they've not been in an ICU before. And they feel like they have no control. You know, we're saying, if you don't do this, they're going to die. Here's X, Y, and Z. And that's a very sort of blunt way of putting it. And I hope most do it a little bit more nuanced than that. But the concept still comes across that way to the family members. And so the idea was, would there be a way to offer opportunities for control? Because the, the change in health status, it's hard to impact that with an intervention such as this. And, and you know, the critical decision-making really does need to happen. So can we give them some semblance of control for their family member while they're in there? And not only did we look at PTSD, but we also used something called family satisfaction and the intensive care unit, uh, which is a 24 question survey, uh, which is validated, you know, maybe a decade ago by one of the uh, authors on this study as well. And there's some, uh, you can look at the total score, but you can also look at individual scores. And we had picked a couple before we did the intervention that we thought might be impacted by this. And the two that I want to highlight here is that there was a question about whether the family felt included in the decision-making and whether the family member felt that they had control over the care. And we had thought that if we saw a reduction in PTSD, which we did, and a change in these two questions, uh, that it would add credence to the idea that our intervention was doing this. And what we did see is that the family members, even when going through our statistical adjustment, there was a statistically significant increase in their sense of being included in the decision-making, which, uh, again, lent credence to the idea that our intervention was reducing PTSD. And then without being adjusted, the idea that the family had more control over the care did increase. But when we did our adjustment, that the statistical significant went away, but there was still a change in a positive direction. Again, hard to draw conclusions on those. They're secondary outcomes. But it led to the idea that this idea of giving them some control in a way that they could determine, not us saying do this or do that, but instead they could choose what was appropriate for them and their family member, seemingly reduced PTSD. Mm -hmm. 
And I definitely think that's a trend across healthcare being, you know, including the patient and the family members in the decision-making process. So I definitely think that's uh, worth talking about there. Yeah, I appreciate that. And in fact, uh, the Society of Critical Care Medicine has guidelines around this. And and when you read them, they are very direct in that families should be included, bedside rounds, participation in the care. But it sort of stops there. It's not quite as granular. And and up until this point, nothing quite like this had been studied. Um, There's been other opportunities to empower them, uh, what their desires may be, getting uh, Randy Curtis, uh, who's also one of the authors here, did a, a trial in... 2000, I think 13 or 14, looking at engaging like a nurse navigator, someone who just sits for as much time as needed with the family to allow them to express both the patient and their wishes for what's going to come from this care. And that was a, you know, a, a positive trial for stress-related disorders as well. And so this type of thing has been thought of, and you're right, as even recommended by our, you know, one of our uh, major societies to include. But the impact is really unknown, uh, and I think this trial sort of helps fill in that gap. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so, did implementing these rituals affect the cost of healthcare at all? That is to say, would implementing the rituals more widely across the uh, across the country affect the national cost of healthcare? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting question, and 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 just frankly, it was outside the scope of this. The only usage uh, metric that we evaluated was length of stay, and it was not different between the two groups. But we didn't look any deeper. I do think that a trial like this, I referenced that nurse navigator trial, that trial did show a significant reduction in healthcare costs, but did take the cost of hiring a, you know, a navigator to participate. This trial had the benefit of, you know, really no cost. It was creating pamphlets and, and letting the family know it was okay to do this. Um, and is easy to hypothesize that perhaps by having their needs met, you know, there's a theory that when families or patients say, please do everything, we in the medical community assume that means medical interventions, where perhaps what they mean is, you know, do everything for my loved one like I would when I was home caring for them. And so this intervention tries to fill that need for them, and and perhaps in filling that, it would maybe adjust the direction of care such that they would not be getting dialysis if it was not thought to help their long-term outcome. And so I think it's a it's a very important question and one that uh, should and could be studied. But uh, unfortunately, this was, you know, largely outside the scope of this trial. Mm-hmm. And I think it kind of reflects back to something you said before about it didn't really take that much time for these uh, healthcare providers and even nurses to, you know, take that extra step and just you know, hold the person's hand or something like that. So I think that plays into it too a little bit. Absolutely. And and actually uh, that brings up a, another important point, you know, rolling out an intervention like this, I think at the, on the surface, it, it just seems in my opinion, but I'm totally biased. It seems great. And, and then you start going into the ICUs and you talk to the nurses and there was an, um, immediately concern that there might actually be interference from the family members that they might get in the way of the nursing care that was required for these critically ill patients. And so from a research standpoint, we put a lot of energy into engaging the nurses and understanding what their concerns were, surveying them throughout the entirety of the study, both prior to the intervention and during the intervention, and trying to sort of meet and understand their needs or concerns as they'd come up. Um, and what we were able to find by surveying them, and this is in some of the supplemental data that's in that paper, is that with surveying over 500 nurses, you know, they strongly disagreed with the statement on average that the 
interventions served to hinder their care or made it more difficult to care for other patients, and strongly agreed with questions around things like improving their relationship with the families, improving communication. Not included in this trial, but something uh, I hope to get out and published. We did some focus group and some qualitative analysis of different nursing experiences. And anecdotally, there was a lot of description of getting back to sort of why they became nurses, getting to know the patient in the bed, not as a patient, but as a person. And so I think that upfront, nurses who aren't used to this sort of open flow and communication with families might be hesitant, but uh, which could, I, I think, be a very important barrier that could stop something like this from getting off the ground. But we tried to take into account in our study, and I think um, speaks again to, there's no cost into doing that. There's just some time spent with educating the floor that you're rolling this out on. And then we give pamphlets to them for all sorts of things, but to add a pamphlet to it that says, here's a menu of things that you should feel empowered to do if you'd like. And that's kind of the end of the cost for it. Mm-hmm. Great. Great. Um, so then what other knowledge gaps need to be filled before implementing these rituals more widely? Or are there any knowledge gaps? Yeah, I think there are. You know, I think that one was in the trial design, uh, you know, uh, in evidence-based medicine, of course, a randomized control trial is uh, one of the best things we can do to show real cause and effect. And this was not randomized or controlled in that way. It was a before and after intervention trial. And so to really make strong conclusions about the benefit of this intervention, I think we need that type of trial. And then the other reality of enrollment in this trial is that the generalizability is a little bit limited as most, about 60% of the enrollees, the family members were women and were white. And that may have in part been due to the Italian enrollment, which was exclusively white, but I think it limits the ability to draw full conclusions to other demographics. We did do some subset analyses of this that weren't included in the paper that didn't suggest that there were differences across either racial or gender identity um, groups, but I think that we can't really draw that conclusion because the, the numbers start getting small as you do that type of analysis. One other thing that I think is an important point to notice that comes up in the secondary outcomes is that interestingly in the United States sites where palliative care consults exist, they don't really happen in the same way in Italy. Uh, There was a significant reduction in palliative care consults during the intervention, which was surprising to us. Um, You know, you'd think an intervention like this perhaps would get palliative care involved earlier. And we don't know if that was an unintended consequence. There's a whole body of literature about the value of palliative care and early palliative care and intensive care patients. So whether this was an unintended negative consequence, but the other theory that uh, we have or hypothesis we have about it is that perhaps palliative care is used when the team, the nurse, the physician, whomever feels that the patient and family's needs aren't being met and that those that were enrolled in this intervention, there seemed to be that their needs were being met better. And that's a little bit of a difficult thing to study, but the reduction there may be related more to that than an unintended negative consequence, especially because we saw satisfaction scores improve. We saw um, PTSD, uh, you know, go down the things we've talked about already. So I think it's unlikely that it was negative, but important to consider. And so I think understanding that further would be a, uh, a knowledge gap to really fill in before, you know, widely implementing this. But I think even with those gaps, you know, it really is a, a low risk and low cost intervention. You know, there was some concern that asking family members to participate in the patient care might increase their anxiety or their depression or their PTSD around that. We saw nothing that indicated that. We really measured that both objectively. And then, as I mentioned, we did these nursing surveys, which were at the moment uh, of the, that care happening. And uh, so anecdotal, but the, the nurses uniformly felt that 
this did not increase the family member's stress, but instead reduced it even at the bedside. That's great. So in summary, what would you say the overall key take-home message from your study is? Yeah, I think that the sort of major take-home point in looking across a lot of the literature and what this tried to really tap into is that interventions are opportunities for families to express themselves in a way that's appropriate, and I used the term family-centric before, is extremely valuable in engaging in the care of their ICU patients. You know, in this study in particular, giving them that semblance of control, allowing them to express themselves in that way, as we've talked about, uh, was associated with a reduction in PTSD, you know, increased sense of inclusion in the decision-making, perhaps an increased sense of having control over the care, and all without interfering with nursing care and perhaps serving to improve communication, you know, and connection between the RNs and the family. And so, in the process of doing actually a bit of a systematic review on this topic. And when you look at the interventions in general that work and those that seem to not, those that work are the ones that really allow that individual expression of the patient and their family group towards the healthcare system. And the ones that seem to not have positive results are where the healthcare system implements something towards them, if that makes sense. And so I think trying to see this study as a way to really allow them full expression of what is important to their family and how that doesn't interfere with our medical care, but but really can benefit them in the long run. Because um, I can't remember if I mentioned, but we measured this PTSD three months after discharge. And, and so this was a real, you know, durative effect of this intervention, it seems, that it held their symptoms of PTSD from uh, being developed at that time frame. And, uh, and I think that that can be very helpful to the families. Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing your insights with us about your study today. Yeah, you're welcome. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here and uh, want to make sure I also thank all the nurses and physicians who helped with uh, get this study done, as well as the, the patients and their families who participated, because I think it's really valuable stuff. So thank you.